0: my wife, Keila, and I. Uh, We have two kids. Um, We have a third on the way. Yeah, it's happening really soon. And I mean like really soon. So if she gives me the signal, um, you probably saw her walk across the front of the stage. If she gives me the signal, like, I'm out of here. We're going to the hospital, St. Thomas. It's pretty close. So we'll we'll be jetting out of here. Y'all will be in Philippians chapter two on your own. Just read it, meditate on it. You'll be fine. Um, If that happens... No worries, um, I'm sure Dave will step up here and, and preach. Uh, but one of the most amazing and simultaneously scary things about being parents and watching your kids grow up is that they are more or less little minds or mirrors, like Keilah and I discovered this pretty quickly. They, they wanna do what we're doing. They're gonna say the things that we're saying almost to the very way that we say them so much so that we're actually contemplating changing their names from Isaiah and Grace to Pete and Repeat because Pete and Repeat gives you a picture of like what our home life looks like right now because every time I'm out mowing the grass, which praise the Lord is not very frequently right now, um, one, of my, one of my kids is there with their little Fisher Price bubble lawnmower, you know, you know the thing, and they're like there mowing the grass with me. Last night, was cutting up some watermelon, and it's like butcher knife, watermelon. The kids are like moth to a flame. I wanna get near that as fast as I possibly can, and they're wanting to help. They're wanting to cut the watermelon too. Last night, my son, he was upset. I don't even know about what, and I heard my two-year-old daughter chime up. She's like, it's okay to be sad, Ike, and I'm like, Apparently we must say that because that could not have come out of you. And I think Keila does a good job of like helping our kids understand like emotions are good. Like you can feel your emotions and our two-year-old daughter is telling our four-year-old son, it's okay to be sad, buddy. <laughs> now every once in a while, like every once in a while, like our kids will act up, you know, they'll, they'll, they'll misbehave. It's, it's few and far between, I promise. Um, not really, not true. And there's this moment where, uh, you know, the frustration they have turns into anger and the anger they have then boils over into some kind of outburst and I'm left thinking to myself like where in the world have they learned this must be their mother I don't know (laughs) JK JK I know exactly where they learned it I know exactly where they've seen it I know exactly what these moments mean (laughs) these moments are very humbling and it's because our kids are simply becoming who they are beholding They're becoming who they are beholding. Now, this is true. This is true no matter who you are. No matter what your story is, no matter the life phase that you find yourself in, no matter your maturity, no matter the age, we are all becoming what we are beholding. We are all becoming the thing that we give our attention to. It's the reason we have taken this entire summer as a church family to to, to look at, to behold, to study, to to meditate upon, and to hopefully experience Jesus. Because we're all being formed, like we're all being formed, we're all being shaped, we're all being influenced, and as followers of Jesus, as disciples of Jesus, if this is who you are, Jesus has to be the thing that's shaping us. He has to be the one that's forming us. He has to be the one that's influencing us more than anyone else. So if he has to be our first, if he has to be the the best thing that we give our attention to, if our aim is to be like Jesus, the thing that we have to do is we have to behold Jesus. This morning, we're going to be looking at the humility of Jesus, the beautiful humility of Christ the humble, the humble nature of our King and our Savior with the aim of not just looking at it. Like, that's not the goal. That's not the goal of this series. That's not the goal of this morning is just to simply look at the humility of Christ. No, the aim is to be people who embody this heart and posture. And this morning, I think the thing that we're gonna discover as we dig in together is that the only way to become people of true humility is to behold the one who did it perfectly, to behold the one who lived in perfect humility. Now, when it comes to Jesus, when it comes to his ways, I think a lot of times you find that non-believers or non-Christians can actually get on board with a lot of his heart and a lot of his teachings, whether it's justice or love or caring for the least of these or serving the poor. When it comes to a lot of these things, I would argue that the cultural wind is actually at our back. The cultural wind is at our backs when it comes to following Jesus Now, when it comes to humility, I think the cultural winds are right in our face, especially in a city like Nashville, this this ambitious city with competitive universities, competitive industries, everybody kind of aiming to make it, like that's the environment that we're swimming in. It's a city full of ambitions and dreams and goals. So you look at something like humility and you're like a humble posture. In a city like this, where where does that fit into the picture? But it isn't just our city, like I I love our city. This is the cultural narrative working at large, across the board. It's it's get noticed, get famous, get likes. This is what everything is pushing and telling us is important. So the cultural currents that are working against a, a spirit, a posture of gentleness, of meekness, uh, they don't just end there. They're, they've actually been at work a lot longer than I think most of us realize. I read an incredible book and, and some of the sociologists and psychologists pointed out that we are living in the era that they have deemed expressive individualism. Expressive individualism. Now you probably, you probably feel this. You probably feel this like day to day that the fact that we're living in this era of expressive individualism. Now. It may be best defined by a few key phrases. Let me give you those key phrases. You be you. Be true to yourself. Follow your heart. Find yourself. So we have to understand we're all being formed, we're all being shaped. The majority of the things that we're taking in, the majority of the things that I think a lot of us are taking in, social media, news, it, even education is telling you, hey, it's about you. It's about you. You will, you will find yourself by looking inward. Everything is about your desires, your wishes, your preferences. Like we are being bombarded with this narrative every single day and here's the thing I don't know about you but I don't need help thinking more about myself I'm pretty good at it already now a narrative that will actually do the very opposite of what it's telling you it's going to do fill yourself find yourself here's the thing it's actually going to leave you empty I found that out to be true I think we all have found that out to be true So there's gotta be something more, right? And there is. There is. There is a narrative from Nazareth. Jesus, what he's gonna do is he's gonna offer us a story. He's gonna offer us a path that is so much better, so much better, and yet, here's the thing, many won't take it. Many won't take it because it's counterintuitive to the spirit of the world. Jesus, what he's gonna say is, hey, I actually wanna invite you to empty yourself. I actually want to invite you to lay down your life. If you you lay down your life, you're actually going to find life. The abundant, the full, overflowing life that comes with following and living with Jesus. Now, let's let's take a look at this beautiful counterway of humility we're invited into in Philippians chapter 2. Now, Philippians chapter 2, it is one of the most theologically rich passages. in in all of scripture. like We could camp out here for probably the rest of the year in all honesty and it would be amazing. But what I wanna do this morning is I wanna just kinda do a high overview. I wanna do a high overview. So if Jesus says empty, empty yourself, you will find life. What does that actually look like? And I want us to look at three kind of key movements, three key phrases. Number one, I want us to look at a condition suffered. If you're taking notes, number one, a condition suffered. The second thing I want us to look at is a compelling posture. And number three, a call to contemplate. A condition suffered, a compelling posture, and a call to contemplate. So let's first look at number one, a condition suffered. The passage that that Logan read earlier, Philippians 2, it's actually a small portion from a longer letter. A man named Paul wrote, he's a follower of Jesus, a leader in the church, and he's writing this letter to a group of Christians in the city of Philippi 2,000 years ago. And he starts this letter He starts this portion of the letter by making this call to unity. Read verse two with me again. Verse two, Philippians chapter two. He says, then make my joy complete by being like-minded, having the same love, being in one spirit and of one mind. I don't think there is a single person out there or in this room today that doesn't wanna be a part of the community that's described here a community of people, a way of living where there's love, there's there's buy-in, there's not divisiveness, there's not fighting. I think deep down in all of us, we want this. We desire this. I think we want it on a micro level. Like this is our heart and our desire for our own families. This is our heart and our desire for our own friend groups. But I think we want this. We desire this on a macro level too. We want this for a city. We want this for a nation. Now, it's really easy to call out the, the, the division, the lack of unity out there, right? It's what Dave talked about last week with the, with the tribalism. But Paul, he's not writing this to, to a group of people out there. He's, he's writing this to the church. He's writing this to, to a group of Christians. And I think the reason he is, and I want to point out, is the condition that I want us to talk about is a universal condition of the human heart that every single person suffers from so that even in the body of Christ, even in the church, even as followers of Jesus, we can run into this divisive spirit and I don't have to start naming things. You've experienced it. The condition that we all suffer from, Paul, he names it very clearly here in verse three. He says, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit, Philippians chapter two, verse three. So what I wanna do, I wanna take a couple moments and look at these, how this condition will sometimes play out in our lives and in our hearts. And the reason we're doing this first, the reason I wanna name the condition is because you first have to understand the problem in order to step onto the path of healing. You have to be able to understand, hey, here's what my heart is dealing with in order to step onto the path of healing that Jesus is going to offer. So let's first talk about selfish ambition a little bit. In the original language, this, this would have been one word, and it would have had a connotation of like divisiveness, unhealthy competition. That's what, that's what Paul's naming here. Now, I want to point out, he doesn't actually say ambition, right? He says selfish ambition. So I found myself kind of asking the question this week, okay, how do you, how do you decipher between the two? How do you distinguish between the two? So the question I found myself asking was, okay, and I think we need to ask ourselves, What are we being ambitious about and what is the end goal of that ambition? What are you being ambitious about and what is the end goal of that ambition? Who who is it that I'm trying to please? Like who is it that I'm trying to honor with this ambition? Is the end goal of this drive, is the end goal of this, this work ethic more fame and more glory for me? Is the end goal of this ambition, this drive, whatever it is that you're going after, is it more pleasure, more comfort for me? Is the aim of my ambition to bring more attention to myself or is it to bring attention to someone else? Because here's the thing, and I think we can understand, Paul was actually a man of ambition. He was really ambitious. He worked diligently. But the question is, for who and what reason? Because I'm going to make the argument this morning, if the end goal of our lives as followers of Jesus, if you're a follower of Jesus in this room, the end goal of our lives is to bring glory to God, to bring glory to God and enjoy him doing it. Do your ambitions, does your call reflect this goal? And this can be true. This can be true no matter who you are and no matter what you do. So whether you're a teacher, whether you're an engineer, whether you're a stay-at-home mom, whether you're a student, whether you're an electrician, whether you're an artist, the goal and the purpose of everything we do, including our work, is to bring glory to God. You're like, okay, Andrew, yeah, you're the pastor up there, but I'll tell you what, in all honesty, I've seen way more people who do this well who are not a pastor or paid by a church. Many of them are right here in this room. Paul, he continues, though, he continues to kind of diagnose this condition that we all suffer from, and he says, vain conceit. I'm gonna step on some toes, including my own, so get ready. Depending upon your translation, it might read, empty conceit or vain glory. I think more often than not, the reason there's selfish ambition, the reason there's divisiveness, the reason there is a lack of unity, all boils down to this thing that Paul names in vain conceit. Now, in the original language, it would have been one word that was derived from two words, The first word being kenosis. Y'all say kenosis. Kenosis. Right. This means to empty. To empty oneself. The second word is doxa. Say doxa. Doxa. Yeah, you're Greek experts. Way to go. This word means glory or honor or respect. So the literal meaning is to be empty of glory. To be empty of glory. That's, that's, That's vain conceit. And what Paul is expressing and explaining here, track with me, Is we have this hunger, we have this need for respect, for honor, for approval, vain conceit really just means that there's this hunger, this need for assurance that we are important. I love the way that Tim Keller kind of names this. He says, this is radical cosmic insecurity. It's deeply lacking identity in the right place. This, I think, is the root cause of so many of those feelings that we struggle with, including myself. Those feelings of, oh man, I don't count. I don't matter. I'm just one of many. It's this feeling that that has us longing for assurance from other people. This longing is there. It's deep within the condition of the human soul. But here's the issue. Far too often, including myself, I think we find ourselves going to the wrong places and the wrong people to fill this longing and fill this need. Because there is only one person. Literally, there is only one person who can fill this void. Do you see how, how being empty of glory, feeling like you aren't important, do you see how this can kind of lead to division and a lack of unity? you see it in the tribalism that, that Dave talked about last week? I think, I think this condition of vain conceit, of being glory, of empty, feeling like we're not important, feeling like we're not seen, is a huge reason these tribes and segments of people are formed. Because we want to be seen. We want to be heard. Like, we want to be validated as human beings. And so what happens is we end up surrounding ourselves with people who are going to do exactly that. And when one of these groups or one of these tribes feels a little bit slighted, feels a little bit attacked, it's an attack on their importance. It's an attack on on their validation as human beings. And so what happens? Conflict bubbles up. You begin to see division. You begin to see conflict. You begin to see hatred. It's the condition of radical cosmic insecurity. Now, it's easy to point the finger, right? It's easy to point the finger, but I was, I was just like struck across the face this week with the condition of my own heart. I do something for someone else. I, I want to be recognized. Man, I, I want to be told, great job. I, ha- I have this longing inside of me for people to tell me what I'm doing is good. What I'm doing is right. What I'm doing matters. It's important whether it's parenting, I don't care what it is. Like, it seems like I need that kind of recognition. Parenting, as a husband, as a pastor, as a friend, whatever that task is before me, whatever it is before me, I'm left kind of wanting one, one thing. I'm wanting recognition. Does this, does this sound familiar? Does this resonate in any of your hearts this morning? Now, let me just say, this is not a bad desire. But the question is, where and why are we looking to get that desire filled? John Tyson, pastor of Church in the City in New York recently said this, it caught me when I read it. it said, we live in a world that thirsts for recognition. It's woven its way into everything, social media likes, gamification, rewards, public proof. Now listen to this, it's moved from cultural nudges to societal addiction. And if, if I had to boil this condition down into one word and the way that this condition manifests itself, you could do it. And this, this would boil down to one word, which is pride. The hunger for glory and recognition summed up manifesting in one word, pride. It's, it's that reason, it's that reason you can't help but post that on social media. It's the reason that I can't help but bring that good thing or accomplishment up in conversation. At the heart of this condition is the thing that we all suffer from, which is pride. That's the end of the sermon. All right, I hope you all have a nice, no, no, just kidding. (laughs) Don't worry. Like, the sermon does not end there. The story of God in humanity, it does not end there. I want to begin talking about an alternative narrative the way of Jesus has to offer, that that counterintuitive path that leads to the abundant life. And I, I wanna call this the antidote to the condition. Paul actually gives us the antidote in the very next sentence of verse three, like how good of him to do this. He says, rather, listen to the antidote, rather in humility, value others above yourselves, not looking to your own interests, but to the interests of others. The antidote Paul gives The path of healing that he describes, this beautiful and compelling posture is the compelling posture of humility, which is our second kind of movement along the path. Now, to kind of quickly summarize where we've been, Paul's saying, hey, I want you to be unified. The reason we aren't unified is because of this condition that we all suffer from. This selfish ambition, this vain conceit, this hunger for glory and recognition, which results in pride. And then as, as Paul begins to look to the one that we follow, as Paul begins to look to the one that, that saved him, that redeemed him, that showed him grace, that showed him mercy, he begins to lay out this path to healing, the antidote, this considering others before you consider yourself. And he begins to lay out this upside down way of the kingdom of God. He said, we're gonna discover here, oh, you, you wanna be first? The way to do that is actually be last. You wanna find your life? Oh, you're actually gonna give up your life for the sake of the kingdom. What we're gonna see through and in Jesus is this compelling posture. And we're gonna see that it is the only thing that's powerful enough to overcome this condition of pride that I think we all deal with. Have you ever, have you ever experienced someone or been around someone that truly, genuinely like, considers others' needs above themselves, just been around someone who's just always just thinking about other people. And it's not to get attention. They're really, just, they're really just doing it out of the overflow of their heart. I was deeply blessed to grow up in a home where, where my mom embodied this heart and this posture of humility. Now, sadly, it's not something I really recognized at the time. But now, in hindsight, in my mid-30s, almost three kids, I, I, just, I just see the humble nature of who she, who she was and who she still is. Almost at every mealtime, at every mealtime, you, you will see her making sure everybody else is good. You'll, you'll see her checking all the grandkids, getting them settled. It's like this incredible, incredible posture of humility. And I think the reason I probably notice it is because I, I'm, a, I'm a little different at mealtimes. So like, I'm coming into mealtimes hot, I'm coming into mealtimes hungry. Like, you know, when they're like, who's gonna go first? Like, I'm that person who's willing to go first almost every time. Like, that's me. So I'm like, who, who is this woman? Where does this come from? She, she's, never, she's never in a hurry to be right. Like, in fact, she would actually rather be wronged than, than fight to be right, even though most of the time she is. She, she deserves recognition more than she gets, and yet there's never this inkling of desire to be recognized. And in, in my mom, I'm realizing, and through Jesus, I'm realizing Humility is not thinking less of oneself. Like, we can't confuse that. Humility is not thinking less of yourself because that's, that's not what my mom or that's not what Jesus embodies. It's just simply thinking of yourself less. In the original language, this word meant gentle. This word meant gentle or modest. Now, like I said, when we started, like the cultural winds are at our face with this one. Gentle and modest. Like, think about that. Think about our culture, think about the culture that we swim in. Like how many areas of your life celebrate gentleness and modesty? The world, what it tends to reward is the most proudest, the most boisterous, not those who are gentle and humble. We're swimming against so many cultural currents. Now, it's not just the case for us. That would have been the case for Paul as he was writing this letter. Like a man who's living in in the greco Roman society At that time, to be viewed as gentle, to be viewed as meek, to be viewed as modest would have not been a compliment. It would have been a put down. They valued strength. People had to respect you. The only way for people to respect you was for them to fear you. And you begin to understand how the Roman Empire worked. So can you imagine, like, think about this. This is the world that they're operating. Can you imagine the waves this posture of humility made when the Christian movement began to sweep across the Greco-Roman world? A group of people whose leader didn't just teach and instruct a posture of humility, but who modeled the most compelling posture of humility we will ever see, we will ever witness, culminating to this moment on the cross. And I've been wondering this week, I'm like, Have have we as the church, have we as disciples of Jesus, as his followers, have we forgotten how important this posture is to the very heart of who God is? Jesus tells us, I mean, he says it pretty plainly, Matthew chapter 5, verse 5, he says this, he says, blessed are the meek, or the humble, for they will inherit the earth. Now, he's making a Jesus doing what he does. He's making a really big statement here in a really neat, confounding way. he say a few things after this. He's, who will inherit the earth? Who will be on the right side of judgment when he returns? The humble. Ultimately, hear me here. Ultimately, this is at the very heart of what it is to give your life to Jesus, to respond to the gospel and to follow him. This is the heart. Because if if we come to God and we say, God, I, I want relationship with you. Will, you, will you look at my accomplishments? Look, look, look at what I've done. Can I step into the kingdom of God? He's gonna say, I I don't think you understand. I don't think you understand who I am. I don't think you understand who you are. On the other hand, if you say, Oh Lord, God, I repent. I am a sinner in need of grace. I have done nothing in order to deserve your grace. Jesus, like, will you save me? Will you redeem me? Will you do for me what I can't do for myself? Saved by grace through faith. This is the very posture and heart of humility that Jesus is inviting us into. Now, let me talk about just kind of the conundrum Of humility the conundrum I found myself on this week is I'm I'm preparing preparing this sermon you can't work on humility directly it's simply a byproduct of something else humility is not this program to be followed it's this thing to be imparted when you find yourself actually thinking about humility like and how to be humble boom back to square one you're starting over which brings us to our last movement and how I want us to send us in communion, a call to contemplate, a call to contemplate. So Paul, he's kind of ending this little little portion of the letter, and he ends it a little bit differently than than one might expect. I'm thinking, okay, Paul, like you've given us the condition, you've kind of laid it out there for us, this posture, this compelling posture that we are to live in as followers of Jesus. It's like, name our three-step plan, Paul. Like, give it to me. Give it to me straight. Name our three-step plan of how I can walk in humility. Instead, what does Paul do? He breaks out into song. Like, Paul breaks out into this hymn. He breaks out into this hymn. I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but 611 in your Bibles, it's in these stanzas. It's not this three-step plan process. It's this hymn of praise about the deity of Jesus. It's this song about the greatness of who he is and what he's done and what he's like. And so if you can't work on humility directly, what are you supposed to do? You're supposed to look at someone else. Paul is saying, hey, the way that we're going to fix the condition that we all suffer from is to live with this compelling posture of humility. And the way that we're gonna get this compelling posture of humility is to contemplate the Christ that we follow. The only way to become people who live lives of true humility is to behold the one who did it perfectly. You don't become who you want to be, you simply become who you behold. And beholding our humble king and savior this, this is what will give us the quiet strength needed to swim against the, the culture of self that our hearts are so conditioned to follow. It's, it's this call to contemplate someone. Jesus, who who had everything. Think about this. To contemplate someone who had everything, have it all, but use none of it to his own advantage. But instead, he would actually let go of it. He would let go of it so that everyone could have everything God had to offer in life with him. Verse verse seven literally says, he made himself nothing. He, He emptied himself. Do you remember that from earlier? What did he empty himself of? He emptied himself of glory. He emptied himself as he left heaven of the glory that he so rightfully deserved. Why? so that we could live in glory with him forever. Jesus emptied himself of his glory so that we could experience the glory of God for eternity, the very thing that we were made for. It's that very hole that we're looking to fill. And here's the thing, when we contemplate, when we meditate and experience the humility of Jesus in our own lives, this amazing thing begins to happen. Begins to happen to us, we begin to see the world differently. We begin to operate differently. We begin to see the same way that that he does. We begin to see that the, the way to be truly rich is to give away. The way to rule is to serve. The way of happiness is not to seek happiness for self, but to seek the happiness of others. The greatest form of glory in the way of Jesus is to give away your glory for somebody else because just like Jesus, our reward and our recognition is not of this world. Our reward and our recognition is in the one that is to come. It's how Paul ends this hymn that Logan read earlier. Therefore, therefore, the recognition, the reward, it's coming for those of you who are giving your life away to Jesus. Therefore, God exalted him, Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. The recognition is coming, but it's not on this side of eternity. So today, as we we head to the table of grace, And in this week, during our time with God, I want to invite us into this posture of beholding Jesus, of contemplating Jesus, of looking at the incredible posture of Jesus in each of our lives. As you worship, as you pray, As you go about your week, I want to invite you into this posture of just contemplating, knowing that the path to healing isn't going to come through trying to fix humility in and of itself. It's going to be looking to someone who will then impart humility to us deep, deep within us to contemplate what he's done, to look at him, to meditate upon him until it stirs this fire in our hearts and becomes the very people we are. Let's pray. Father, we love you. Jesus, we love you. Holy Spirit, we love you. And Jesus, right now, I I just want to look to you. I just want us to collectively contemplate the reality of what we read in Philippians 2. That, That you would let go of heaven, that you would come here, that you would actually become a servant. A servant so much so that you would go to the cross even though you were never wronged, even though you walked in perfect humility. And Jesus, I ask that our hearts would catch fire with who you are and what you've done. We can't produce humility We can't work on humility, but we can behold you. We can look to you. We can realize who we are and who you are and know that humility is going to follow. Jesus, it's in your name that I pray. Together as a whole church, we say, amen.